Hi, everybody. Welcome to Parsha Lab. This is Rabbi David Foreman, and I am here this week with Rifki Stern. Rifki actually filled in last week as I was not around, and uh, she's back this week. Imu Shalev is not around. So, uh, Rifki, you're going to be a regular contributor here. How does it feel? <laughs> it's a little scary, but I'm enjoying it, actually. I'm, I'm, I like it. Embrace the fear. That's what <laughs> I always say. Today we'll be looking at Parshat Shmini together. You know, Shmini is one of those Parshat which is in the thicket of, of Sefer Vayikra. And Sefer Vayikra is, you know, one of those books that is difficult in a way for us to get our hands around. A lot of sacrificial law, a lot of focus on the Mishkan. And the truth is that the focus on the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is really one of the main themes of this week's Parsha. In this week's Parsha, you actually have the dedication ceremony for the Mishkan, the seven-day ceremony, uh, the Shivat Yimei Miluim, followed by a climactic uh, sort of eighth-day moment from which the Parsha gets its name, Ubayom uh, Hashmini, the eighth day. And it's a story of the induction of the Kohanim. And interestingly, if you look carefully at the text, it's not just the induction of the Kohanim, it's the induction of of the Mishkan, and strangely enough, another element which you know you wouldn't have even thought needs needed to be inducted, as it were. Uh, but it's actually about the consecration of the clothes of the Kohanim. Also, the clothes of the Kohanim are also inducted, as it were, and uh, and are consecrated as well. So there's a whole consecration process involving people, the Kohanim, and involving instruments. Uh, of the Mishkan and involving the clothes of the Mishkan. So here's what I thought we would do, uh, Rifki, by way of a game plan here. I thought what we could do, you and I, is is I wanted to share with you um, some stuff that I had noticed, some very tantalizing hints of something going on underneath the surface here. I wanted to share with you some things that I found and kind of brainstorm with you some possibilities of what this all might mean. So are you game? Yeah, I'm excited to explore this together. Very cool. Okay, so Rifki, here's here's what happened. Essentially, um, I was kind of sitting in the pews, as it were, in the synagogue that I go to, and I was listening to the Megillah being read. And there was a combination of words that sort of just kind of jumped out at me. And when I came home, I just kind of, you know, opened up my Tanakh and, and, and kind of found it. And it was like the beginning almost corner piece of a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle here. But here are the words that jumped out at me, and I'm wondering if they mean anything to you in the context of the Parsha that we are looking at, okay? So uh, just by background in the way of the Megillah, this is right in the beginning of the Megillah, um, and we're introduced to Ahasuerus, and he's this big emperor, and he's got this empire that stretches for 127 provinces, and Ahasuerus is really into parties. And the first thing we know is he makes this huge party for all of his officers, Chel Parasumadai, Sarei Hamadinat Lefanav, all these officers, all these lieutenant governors, Baroto et Osher Kvod Malchutov et Yakarti Fert Glulato, and he's showing off all of his riches and all of his glory of his kingship, a big boastful feast. But then when the feast is done, he makes this other feast, V'chatsar Ginat Beitana Melach, in the inner sanctum of the king. And those words there in, in chapter 1, verse 5 of the Megillah are Ubim Laos and upon the conclusion of those, or, or literally upon the fulfilling of those days, the king makes this great feast for seven days. And Rifki, the question I have for you is, what, if anything, in our Parsha does this remind you of? The conclusion of these days or the fulfillment of these days, great feast for seven days. 
So the seven days seems very reminiscent of our Parsha, because in our Parsha, we have the seven days of this Niluim, sanctification of the Kohanim and, as you mentioned, of their clothes. And, you know, just to point to the word there, the seven-day feast for the consecration of the temple is not just described as, you know, the consecration feast. It's called the Shivat Yumei Miluim. And, and what struck me when I was in the pews and, and listening to the Megillah was how reminiscent that was of Ahasuerus' feast. Because take a look at, let, let's look at it. That's right, ubimlaot hayamim ha'ela in in Esther at the fulfillment or in the conclusion of those days. But listen to that in Hebrew, ubimlaot hayamim ha'ela. And now let me just take you into just before our parsha. Take a look at at chapter eight, verse thirty-three, for a second. Just read that out loud and listen to the resonance there. Umipetach olamoed lo teitzu, and you shouldn't go out of the door of the olamoed, the tent of meeting, shivat yamim for seven days. Ad yom loot till the days of the miluim are finished. Exactly, and you see how how close that resonance yeah. is. Ad yom loot right? And here you have It's the Megillah seems to be going out of its way to echo this, and then you throw in the fact that how long is each of these feasts? Seven days. Yeah. Seven days of miluim in the Mishkan. Seven days of miluim for Achashverosh. Sounds crazy, right? I mean, what does that have to do with anything? But, you know, let's go back also, Rifki, to, to what it was that the Shivat Yimelehim Lum were all about. So as we just mentioned, it was about the consecration of the Mishkan, but not just the Mishkan, right? The consecration of the Kohanim and the consecration of the Kohanim's clothes, of all things, right? right? Yeah. So now uh, let me take you back to one verse earlier in the Megillah where we hear about the riches of Ahasuerus and what he's trying to do. And take a look at Esther 1, verse 4, right? We hear of him showing off Osher, the riches of Kvod Malchuto, of the honor of his kingship, at Yekar Tiferet Gdulato, and how dear the glory of his greatness was. Kvod and Tiferet there, right? What does Kvod and Tiferet remind you of? earlier on, right, and, and, and in terms of these things that are being consecrated. And for this, I take you back to Exodus 28. What is the kavod and tiferet? Oh, very cool. Sin? The verses are describing the clothing of the kohanim, of the priests, and the Pasuk says very explicitly, Vasita big day kodesh, and you'll make holy clothing, laron achicha, for our your brother, lechavod ulitiferet. Right? It's the exact same language for this kavod, for splendor, and tiferet, for, for beauty. Exactly. So it's like, here's Ahasuerus showing off his kavod and tiferet. And it's it, it just reminiscent of these clothes of the Kohanim, which just happened to get consecrated when? At the end of these seven days. At the end of these seven days, in these shivat yimei And just in case you thought that was a coincidence, take a look in Esther at how that covet and tiferet expresses itself. That honor and glory expresses itself. Chur, karpas, utrelet, all these royal tapestries. Achuz bechavle butz v'argaman, alglile kesef, amude sheish, mitot zahav v'kesef. You know, among all of these royal implements, right, you have four that stand out in a particular order, right? Listen to this order. Tchelet, which is tapestries of a certain kind of turquoise blue. Argaman, tapestries of a purple related to that blue. Amude Sheish, marble columns. Mitot Zahav Kesef, 
beds with inlay of, of zahav, of, of, of gold. So if you look at those, Tchelet, Argaman, Sheish, and Zahav, in that order, now go out of Esther back into Exodus 28, which we're talking about the, the clothes of the Kohanim. And then we're talking about all the implements which were used to build the Mishkan. Take a look at verse 5. What raw materials were wow. they picking? But just look at the order of those four implements. Right. Tchelet, Argaman, Sheish, and Zahav in the Mishkan. Tchelet, Argaman, Sheish, and Zahav in Ahasuerus' palace. The echo um, seems to yeah, be, you know, very unmistakable. So the question is like, okay, so what does that mean? But before we even get to what does that mean, let's just sort of assemble the data and just making sure we see, you know, as much data as we can here. And then maybe that'll help us. What does it mean? But it sounds like there's some sort of crazy correlation between... Well, let me give it a shot to sum it up here. It seems like, first of all, they both have these feasts, right? And both feasts happen sort of at the culmination after seven days. They're both celebrating and they're celebrating something with this kavod and tiferet, and they use these very particular types of materials or colors, the trelets, the argabam, the sheish, and the gold, the zahab. And not only that, there's this very clear language of miluim and milot, through which there's this sort of um, sanctification or inauguration or something like that. Did I get them all, Rabbi Foreman? Right. And actually, I think maybe that the last word that you use might actually be a key, mm. right? And if the purpose of the miluim in the Mishkan is sanctification and inauguration, is that also the purpose of the parties at some level? So I think that gets to my first question, right? Which to me, this feels a little bit almost troubling, right? We think of the the these seven days and the culmination of these seven days for our Parsha, for the sanctification of the Mishkan, as this incredibly spiritual experience for the entire Israelite people and for the Kohanim themselves and for Moshe. We've gone through this entire process. We've put together sort of our new religious leadership uh, for how we're going to have this intensely strong connection with God through the Mishkan. And then we look at Ahasuerus' party, which is superficial and kind of gross and not and it's intended to show his riches and not right. intended to show anything really yep. meaningful and and that's true so it's a it's, it's at face value a troubling connection mm-hmm. right so you know you should not be able to sleep at night this is like oh my gosh what is happening in the megillah are you really telling me that Ahasuerus's feast is somehow you know this this debased, drunken uh, kind of feast is connected to the Mishkan. But let's follow the data a little bit more, and maybe we'll get smarter. Let's actually focus on the debased drunkenness of this, because if you go to verse eight in in Esther, what do we hear about wine during this feast? How much wine was there? It looks like what the, the drinking was, it was actually the law. That's right. It By was... law, everyone does whatever way they want, which is an oxymoron, yeah. right? Because if you think about <laughs> the whole nature of law, how would you define the institution of law? The king society? sets the rules. You have to do what the king wants. And the king's rules actually circumscribe what you want, right? right? Uh, that's the whole point. I can't do whatever I want because there's laws. No. Not in Persia. In Persia, (laughs) the law was do whatever you want. And everyone should have as much wine so that there's no inhibitions. And that's the law. So this very oxymoronic law. But now relate that 
to the Shivat Yimei Miluim. Think about wine during the Shivat Yimei Miluim, especially the culmination of the Shivat Yimei Miluim. Does that remind you of anything? What actually happened on the eighth day in our Parsha, and how does wine relate to it? So I think what you're kind of going to be referring to is Nadav and Avihu. Yep. So basically what happens is in this story, just to, to summarize, is that Nadav and Avihu and the culmination of this, which is supposed to be the most spiritual, holy part of this entire event, Nadav and Avihu, two of the sons of Aaron who are about to become Kohanim or priests, they kind of mess up. They do the wrong thing. And our understanding is that there was there was alcohol involved here and God punishes them by killing them. So the understanding, which Rifki is referring to, is actually not explicit in the text. That's given to us by the rabbis. But what is explicit to the text in the text, and why it is seemingly that the rabbis come up with it, is a law that comes right after this. Um, so if you look at chapter 10, verse 8, Rifki, what's the law? So God says to Aaron, you are not allowed to drink any sort of wine or alcohol when you approach the Oomoed so that you will not die. So you see, we have a contrast now. And by the way, this is sort of how biblical intertextuality works. What we're seeing here is an example of intertextuality, is an example of two texts that seem to be playing off of each other, that the author of the Megillah seems to be purposely playing off of the Shivat Yimei Miluim. But if you stand back and ask, so what's the meaning of that? And this, I think, Rifki gets to your point about how troubling the connection is, that one of the solutions to the connection is not is that the mere fact that there is all these resonances in the Megillah of the Shivat Yimei Miluim in our Parsha does not suggest that we are looking at a perfect replay of the Shivat Yimei Miluim, right. right? It's not just like, oh, the Shivat Yimei Miluim are happening again, but I don't get it, it's Achashverosh, that's so terrible. No, it's not necessarily the case that it's happening again. So the analogy I often give to this, I have a big fancy word for it, so I'm going to intimidate <laughs> uh, you, Rifki, I'm with this. or any, Anybody listen? My big fancy word is that this is my binary theory of biblical intertextuality. Woo! Yeah, so what basically the way it works is like this. If you know anything about computers, you know that computers work with binary languages. They, they're sort of the base two system. So the only thing a computer really understands is zeros and ones, yeses and nos. So now you could perhaps challenge me and say, one second, I, I don't get it. You're telling me that the only thing a computer really knows are zeros and ones. That's the only thing a computer knows. My computer looks like it knows a lot more than that. Like my computer can paint a picture of a Mona Lisa on the screen. A Mona Lisa is like this very subtle piece of art. It's not like just zeros and ones. How do you get a Mona Lisa out of zeros and ones? So Rifki, if somebody challenged you that, right? If you're on the plane, somebody sits to you and says, oh, you've done some computer science. Well, tell me how you get a Mona Lisa out of zeros and ones. What would you say? So I would say that I know very little about computer science, but my general understanding is that you can turn those zeros and ones with strings of those zeros and ones into much more intricate creation. That's how you create something much bigger. Exactly. And the way you would just do it is you would say, okay, let 01101 code for a red dot and let 11010 code for a blue dot. And you assign different combinations of zeros and ones to all these different colors. And if you give me enough zeros and ones, I can paint you a Mona Lisa with all the different dots. And so I can get the Mona Lisa out of zeros and ones. So similarly, the Torah can paint Mona Lisas in binary ways as well. It's just, it's a very powerful system, binary systems. The way intertextuality works, or the way the Torah seems to use intertextuality, is in a binary way. So for example, here you are, you're reading story A, 
like the story of Yumei Miluin, and you happen to start noticing these connections to some other story, in this case, the story of Ahasuerus' feast. It doesn't just mean that what's happening in Ahasuerus' feast, as we said before, is a replay of the first story. It's What you're getting is a whole bunch of zeros and ones. In other words, for every connection, for every point of connection between the stories, there's two possibilities, zero and one, yes and no. Either the same thing is happening in, say, Ahasuerus' feast as happened in the Shivat Imeim or the opposite thing is happening, right? And if you can show me that there's 27 connections between these stories, and in 18 respects the stories are the same, and in 9 respects the stories are the opposite, so you start to paint a Mona Lisa. You right. said to understand Ahasuerus' feast, you need to understand it with reference to the Shivat Imeim right. but it's very different, right? It, it's its own thing right. that is sort of emerging out It of seems that. like what the Torah is trying to do is trying to get you to notice this giant sign that's saying there's something here there's something here and then once you can see those similarities and you start to put that together then you can notice the contrast things you might not have noticed initially and those contrasts are meant to point to you something underlying about both of those two stories that you might not have noticed earlier Sure. And that's a nice way of thinking about it, right? What you seem to be saying is that it's almost that all the similarities just deepen the contrasts. Exactly. Right? Which is like here, oh my gosh, this is so wonderful. Look, there's this great feast. But then, bam, the wine, right? Right. It's like, what's the deal with all the wine? There's this rule that you're all supposed to be drunk, right? And it's like that changes the whole nature of the feast, right? Instead of something where I'm present consciously and, and and also it's interesting if you think about wine, Rifki, now that you, you sort of think about it, how does that have to do with the idea of consecration, Kedusha? If you think about the notion of what consecration is, consecration is where I take something that is mundane, of this world, and then I consecrate and all of a sudden it's not of this world anymore. It is Kadosh, it is separate, it is part of some other transcendent ethereal world, God's world. And now, and, and that's what Kedusha is when I consecrate the Mishkan, when I consecrate Aaron, when I consecrate his clothes. Now, if you think about wine's role in all of that, it's actually kind of interesting, isn't it? How, how do you say that wine relates to that notion of consecration? Well, it feels like wine goes through some sort of process that, that is similar to that, right? Why, what is wine? Wine is fermented grape juice, right? Grape juice is something that seems pretty straightforward, pretty mundane, but then it goes through this sort of intricate process in which something entirely new and very different is created. That's why we use wine as part of our Kiddush, right? Which is the, obviously the sanctification of Shabbat or the of holidays. So you're right that mm-hmm. wine seems to be special here. It is a drink which transforms itself. And it's also a drink that transforms the consciousness of the drinker. Yes. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's literally a mind-altering drink. So if you think about it, one of the reasons why people drink wine is as an escape from the reality of life, from mundane life as it is. From right? Chol. From Chol. So if you think about it, wine is a cheap way of achieving transcendence. If I can get myself high, if I can get myself drunk, I can sort of escape this painful, crowded, difficult world beset by actual real-life problems that I must solve, and I escape into some sort of ethereal transcendent sphere. So it's almost as if wine is a shortcut to a feeling of transcendence, but there's something that is a lie about it. And therefore, the Torah says that on the Shivat Yimei Miluim, which is about 
bringing transcendence into the world, which is about something, you know, actually getting to a transcendent phase, you need to do that with full non-diluted alcohol consciousness so that the, the process is real instead of sort of artificially motivated. And, and there's something about Akshverosa violates that. I actually, I want to just read the next Pasuk in our Parsha. Right after the law that God gives to Aaron about not drinking wine, it actually says that explicitly, right? That you are supposed to make this distinction between Kodesh and Chol, between Tameh and Tahor as well, but specifically not with wine, right? Just as you were saying, Reformin, is that you could get to that point with wine. That could be a way in which I personally kind of get through that change, or I can use that to consecrate the same way we do with Kiddush. But in the Mikdash itself, it's not appropriate to use alcohol or wine to make that transition. That's in the Pasuk. And if you think about that verse that you're citing, look at that verb. Right. And in order that you create a, a separation between that which is holy and that which is mundane and understand that separation, if you think about one of the principal effects of wine upon consciousness, what is that? The erasure of the ability to separate, the blurring of lines, the blurring of lines between what's socially appropriate and socially inappropriate. So the drunk guy just like talks in the middle of a speech and he doesn't really know what he's doing. The notion of everything goes and everything is blurred together. And yet the kind of approach to Kedusha that you're supposed to have is this clear-minded approach which maintains distinctions. And you understand that this is Chol and this is Kodesh. And it's a different way of getting into the transcendent sphere. Let's just sort of finish up a look at some of this data and then speculate as what it might mean. So we've taken a look at wine. So wine, as you mentioned, is something which seems connected to a sort of failure, a sort of sin that happens right at the climactic moment of the Shiva, of the, of the Yimei Miluim. On the eighth day, Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, they want to come close to God. And what do they do? They bring this offering and they're not commanded to bring that offering. So in other words, they come to a place that they are not commanded to. And because of that, they die and they kind of exit the scene. Now, Rifki, for the $64,000 question, does that remind you or is that the inverse of anything that happens in the Ahasuerus great feast? Yes, this sounds to us exactly like Esther, who is terrified for her life when Mordechai commands her to go into the king's quarters and beg for the Jewish people. And she says, you don't understand to go into the king's quarters when I haven't been commanded, I'm going to be killed. And that seems like exactly like what Nadav and Avihu do. They go into the king's quarters when they weren't commanded to and they were killed. So it almost sounds like Esther's approach to the king might be a successful replay, as it were, of what Nadav and Avihu were trying to do. Entrance when you're not allowed. Right. But now staying within chapter one, is there an inverse of this story? Think about the nut of an of you story, which is they came somewhere when they weren't commanded to yeah, come. Yeah, it seems like there is. It seems like the inverse would be Vashti. Ahasuerus commanded her to enter the party and she refused and she was killed. Exactly. So Vashti is another inverse of this, right? Mm-hmm. Vashti is the equivalent of the inverse of the Nadav and Avyusin. Nadav and Avyu enter when not commanded. Vashti refuses to enter when commanded. 
Uh-huh. And so you've got your Vashti tragic event, and Vashti, of course, suffers banishment or something like that, right? Now, if you doubt this, take a look at the language. Yeah, I was going to ask um, if there were also language parallels right? here. Yeah, so look at the look at the language parallels, and, and the language parallels are kind of stunning, by the way. If you look carefully, what I what I would argue is in the in the Shivat Yemei Meluim, there's actually three successive events that are sort of parallel to the Vashti Esther kind of business which is happening in the Megillah. What are the three events? Very quickly, take a look at chapter 9, verse 23. The height of the conclusion of the Shivat Yemei Miluim, what's supposed to happen? The two second in charges to the king, Moses and Aaron, they come to the inner sanctum, to the oil moed, and where they bless the people. And immediately after they do that, Vayera Kvod Hashem al kol ha'am. Right, the glory of God is seen in this flash to all of the people. The glory of God is seen to all of the people. That's a successful entrance. They were commanded to enter, and as they do, there's this climactic moment where the glory of God is seen to everyone. Now, Rifki, take a look in the Megillah, chapter one, verse eleven. What was the king's command? Right, to bring Vashti, the second in charge, right? And then you would expect this, this climactic thing. What was going to be the climactic thing? To show the, the people, the, the other nations and the officers, her beauty, right? Because she was beautiful to look at. Now look at those words, laharot ha'amim, to show off to the nations, right? And now compare that to the climactic moment that happens when Moses and Aaron, in fact, come into the Olmoed. Can you find anything in our parsha that echoes laharot ha'amim in that glorious, dazzling display of God's glory? Can you give me a hint of it, Foreman? I can. Go look at the verb of laharot. Laharot, what's the verb? To see or to make seen. Uh, Vayera kvod Hashem. To where is Vayera kvod Hashem? Al kol ha'am. Al kol ha'am. Laharot ha'amim. It sounds like, if, if these parallels are correct, that the bringing of Vashti was sort of like the bringing of Moses and Aaron. Afterwards, there was this blaze of glory of Kavod, of the kingdom, which, by the way, gets to a point that I made in a book that I wrote, right? You There's wrote a book? I wrote a book. Oh, my God. Book, Good for you. I know. It was very, very fun. <laughs> and uh, the queen you thought you knew. Of and course, in we'll that put a book, link to that in the show notes, everyone. And by the way, we actually did do a, a video on this, right? And and uh, That's right. But basically, and I think this actually made it into our video series, an Aleph Beta on the queen you thought you knew, which is a certain theory of why Ahasuerus would do such a crazy thing with Vashti, right? What's the deal with a man who tells his wife to stand up on a chair and have all the men ogle her? Like, that's weird. What What is he even doing? Yeah. Yet we suggested that there is a certain kind of rationale, a drunken rationale, but a rationale nonetheless, in this terrible objectification of Vashti. He wants something out of it, perhaps politically. And basically the theory I suggested, which I think these parallels are are starting to corroborate, right, is that Ahasuerus had a problem. He's a new emperor over 127 provinces. You know, Rifki, if you were an emperor of 127 provinces in like 500 BC, when there's no fax machines, no spy satellites, no fighter planes, no communication, and it, like, what's your problem now if you're the emperor over 127 provinces? How do you keep control? How do you keep control? So 
Persia, as opposed to other empires, this is the dawn of the age of empires. So Assyria is like this really mean empire that just believes in crushing everybody underfoot. But Persia was a much more benevolent empire, and Ahasuerus, following in the steps of Cyrus the Great, right, decides that what he's going to do is parties. Parties is going to be his solution. He's going to have these parties and get everybody together on these junkets to Persia and all these lieutenant governors from Turkmenistan, all these other places are going to come together and see the glory of Persia and come back and tell everybody, boy, are we lucky to be part of the Persian Empire. And now the, at the climax of this, there's going to be this sort of feminine symbol of the empire. Vashti is going to be the Statue of Liberty, the picture of the queen, and her beauty is like the beauty of Persia. And in a way, it's this debased version, a very debased version, an objectified, right? It's cruel, it's objectifying, but there is this political purpose, which is a debased version of what was supposed to happen in the Mishkan, which was the glory of the king right, becomes visible to everyone. But for Ahasuerus, the glory of the king is his wife's beauty. She doesn't come. He gets very angry and fire burns within him. Okay, Rifki, fire burning from the king. What does that remind you of in our That's parsha? exactly like the Mishkan, right? It, part of the, the consecration, part of the seven-day events is constant carbado that are going up to God. And when someone didn't do what the king wanted in the consecration ceremony, well, like Vashti, right, the, right. who's the king's fire burned against, what happened to them? Right, same thing. That a fire came out from before God, and it ate them up. Exactly. That's right. So fire from the king in both stories, when the right thing isn't done. And then, the king becomes very angry. And then there's one final replay, right? There's two. So we talked about three replays. Replay number one, sort of, or actually foreshadow number one of the Vashti and Esther story is the successful coming of Moses and Aaron into the tent and the glory of God being seen. Replay number two, the unsuccessful approach of Nadav and when they were not commanded and the fire burned them. And then unsuccessful or successful, depending on how you judge it, attempt number three. Number three is there's somebody now who has to stay in the tent of meeting even though he doesn't want to be there, right? And he has to, just like sort of Vashti, Vashti doesn't want to go. And now there's somebody who has to be in front of the king in the inner sanctum who just doesn't want to be there after the story of Nadav and And who would that be? That is Aaron, who just lost his two sons, and it's the other exactly. two brothers, right? Moshe says to mm -hmm. Aaron and to Elazar and Itamar that they have to stay at the Oamoe. They're not allowed to leave or else they'll die. And they, and they exactly. do so. And now look at what he says and why he has to stay there. Read verse 6 when Moses tells Aaron, look, you know, you can't afford to be the guy mourning over here. You've just got to stay there. Read sort of the end of verse 6. So, so Moshe warns Aaron and Eleazar and Itamar, they can't mourn the way they would expect to, the way normally we would. But instead, they have to do all of this. And why? And it, it kind of explains. Yivku et asrifa asher saraf Hashem. 
They need to, they, uh, the, the, the rest of Israel needs to mourn the, the burning that God has burned over here, which is the destruction of these, these children. But take a look at where it says, you can't be there. We don't want God to become angry at the entire nation. So look at Yiktsov becoming angry paired with the notion of Srefa Asher Saraf of Shem, the burning mm-hmm. of God's fire. And now go back right. to the Megillah like, in so verse 12. There you have it. And the king becomes very angry with the word katsaf and chamatobaron, and it's anger birds inside him. So here's the third replay. Aaron, like Vashti, needs to be in front of the king, desperately doesn't want to be there. And then one thing goes wrong. There's this offering, this chatat, which Aaron is supposed to eat. Right? Remember that? Right. And he just doesn't do it. That Sirah Chatat, Darosh Darash Moshe, and Moshe investigates and sees there's this Chatat, and Aaron actually didn't eat it. Instead, he burned it. Look at that language. Right. We're getting again this replay or this foreshadow of the Esther language, which is the offering was burnt and now Moses becomes angry of Elazar Vitamar. And then Aaron comes and defends them. And what does Aaron say? Look, we did everything else. We offered this offering, and these terrible things have befallen me. And you still want me to eat the chatat? I know that's the law, but you really think on a day that I lost my sons, I should eat the chatat? Read the next words. Hashem. It really would have been pleasing in the eyes of God. He, he's it's almost incredulous. Would that have been, right. right? It's incredulous, as you say. Would that have been pleasing in the eyes of God? And what does Moses do? Vayishma Moshe. And it was good in his eyes. So Aaron's defended. And Aaron defends himself by saying, Hayitav Hashem. Now go back to the Oh my gosh, that's exactly the Megillah. I got it. Vayitav right? That's the language. When as soon as Vashti is sent away, is killed, and then the, this king's decree goes out, right? The Mumuchan's advice is to send this decree out to all of the different people And look people at Mumuchan's advice in chapter 19. How did Mumuchan ask the king? If it pleases the king. So there's this question about Tov. If it pleases the king, let's get rid of Vashti. And the answer is, yeah, let's get rid of Vashti. Here, too, in our Parsha, a question about Tov and an answer about Tov. Right. But very different. Who's the Vashti character in our story in Shmini? Aaron's two sons. And the implicit idea is their tenure is, lies in the balance. Will they be banished for this sin? Vashti was, but they survive. Aaron defends them, right. unlike in the Megillah when no one comes to Vashti's defense. Yeah. Right? And Aaron says, Hayitav Hashem. It's almost like you can imagine Vashti had, would have said something like that if Vashti was only given the chance. But poor Vashti never gets it. Right. Am like, I really supposed to do this? Said? Am I really supposed to come out and debase myself? Am I really supposed to, right. to be seen by the entire nation, all of your officers? <laughs> Yeah. Would that really be good in your eyes? I stand up on the chair. You'd really like me to do that. Right. So at this point, Rabbi Foreman, I think what I'm going to I'm going to play the emu character a little bit. And I'm going to ask, this is incredible, right? We see all of these connections between the between the story of the consecration of the Mishkan and and Achashverosh's sort of disgusting, degrading party. We see uh, language parallels. We see theme parallels. But, you know, at this point, I'm burning, Rabbi Foreman. What does it mean? You know, how am I, Rifki, reading this today? How am I supposed to sort of make sense of why these connections are here and, and sort of what's the next step here? 
So I don't know, but I have a theory and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tease you with the theory and we can leave everybody to think about it and, and you can think about it and we can talk about it next week instead of Tazria Matsura. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but basically my theory is, is this, you know, in certain times in history, things are in the air. Newton and Leibniz both discover the calculus independently. You know, the work that we're doing here in Aleph, Beta, and Tanakh, there's other people across the globe that are doing similar kinds of work, right? Some folks in the Gush and Machon Herzog are, but not just in the Gush. I just had a Haredi fellow over here who was working in, in Jerusalem, giving talks to Hebron and to Panovich, and he stumbled upon this himself. It's in the air, right? And people are going to find it because the age is right for it. What was in the air at the time of Ahasuerus? Empire was in the air. It was the dawn of Age of Empires. First, it was Assyria, right? They were the first great empire that came and crushed Chizkiyahu. And Chizkiyahu repels them and they survive. But then they're taken over by Babylonia. And now Persia is the next empire. And every empire has its own thing. And Ahasuerus is consolidating his empire with these parties. It's like the inauguration of his empire, which suggests that in a certain way, the Shivat Yimei were also an inauguration, in a way, for the empire. What does it mean? The king is coming into his palace. Who's the king in our story, in Shmini? God. God is like the emperor. What's an emperor? An emperor is a new thing in history. Until then, you had kings. Kings had provincial reign. All right, I'm a king over a certain province or over a certain state. An empire has international significance. That is what God's kingship is. The God's kingship, as expressed by him coming to, to be in the palace, is not an issue for Jews. It's an issue for humanity. The temple is not meant as a parochial thing for Jews only. It's actually meant as something for everyone. It has international significance. If you look at King Solomon, at the speech he gives in Sefer Malachim at the inauguration of the temple, he talks about the international significance that people from far and wide can come and encounter God here. It's not just about the Jews. So it's almost as if God is the divine emperor coming into the world. And now, Rifki, I ask you this. Chazal, our sages, say a very strange thing. They say that you know why the Jews were subject, perhaps, why there was a heavenly decree that Haman could force genocide upon them. Why were they vulnerable to that heavenly decree? And every kid learns it in school, in Cheder, or in Beis Yaakov, or in Frisch, or wherever it is that they went to school. What is it they learn about these parties that the Jews did wrong that made them subject to Haman's later decree? Um, there are a bunch of different things I remember learning, but I think one of them is that they were using the Kalim from the Beit HaMikdash. They're using the So Kalim. first of all, you have those things where Chazal talk about Ahasuerus was using the Kalim from the Beit HaMikdash, or that he was dressed in the clothes of the Kohen Gadol. Now, again, with Medrash, you always have to be careful because these things are not necessarily meant literally, but if there's an allegory there, right? If Ahasuerus wasn't literally wearing the clothes of the Kohen Gadol, what does it mean that it was like he was wearing the begotten of the Kohen Gadol. It was like he was eating the, the food of the base of Midrash. What does it mean also when the, the sages tell us that the people were being punished for being nene misudas achashverosh, from eating, from participating, right, in the in the, in the the feasts. Right, you get invited to the White House, that's such a crime. It was a state dinner. What do you have against me? A genocide because I went? But now, in light of all these parallels, right. what was happening in Israel at the time? This is Persia. 
we're at the end of the 70 years of exile right now. Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah are in the land of Israel. And what are they doing? They're trying to get us to come back. They're trying to get us to reclaim our nation, go back to our they, own king, and, our own emperor. That's right. And what are they building? The next Beit HaMikdash. That's right. They're building the second Beit HaMikdash. At this point, the second Beit HaMikdash is built. There was another party that was happening contemporaneously. The Shivat Yimei Miluim of the second Beit HaMikdash. The emperor was coming into the world. The Mishkan was just the run-up to that. The Mishkan was just provincial. It was just for Jews in the desert. But the second temple, it was supposed to be for everybody. What are the Jews doing? They could go back. Cyrus lets them go back. Instead, they're satiating themselves with the feast of Ahasuerus. It's almost like if empire is in the air, part of the reason the empire is in the air is because you can grab whatever's in the air and use it spiritually. Right? There was a something that was happening, some awakening that was happening in humanity that I want to be part of something international. And if you satiate that feeling inside of you by joining Ahasuerus's drunken wine feast to help consecrate, so to speak, the empire of Persia, you're missing the opportunity of another feast around the corner. You could be part of the pioneers, Ezra and Nehemiah. You could be joining in a feast of inaugurating the true transcendent empire, the one where you don't have fake wine bringing you to a feeling of transcendence, but you have real transcendence and you don't need the wine, right? And somehow we lost out on that. That's really powerful, Reformin. I feel like there are so many, so many things that relate to that today. You mentioned this invitation to the White House, and I think that feels very real to us today. It is a big kavo to be invited to the White House Hanukkah party, you know, and that is something that I think people take very seriously. And not to say that that's something that we should be ashamed of, but I think it's something that we, we sometimes forget to think about the context of something bigger than that. The bigger message should not be lost in the splendor of, look at me, I'm in the White House and I'm meeting the president and I'm, you know, speaking to all these important officials. There's a bigger ruler, kingdom. That's right. and, and, you know, and maybe there is that. And it was a, when things are in the air, right? When, uh, you know, science has gotten to a certain place, when knowledge has gotten to a certain place, when political events have gotten to a certain place, maybe there is a kind of in the airness, which has spiritual ramifications for us too. And maybe that awareness, you know, to kind of think, okay, you know, what's happening that's kind of in the air in the world? And how can I take some of that? And instead of participating in it in a mundane way, participated in it a consecrated way is not such a bad question to ask. That's really interesting, Reformin. There's a lot, a lot to think about there. I certainly want to keep thinking about it. And I would love for our listeners to also not only think about it, but send us emails and be in touch with us because this conversation is absolutely not over at this point. Let's, let's keep this Even going. Even though, Rifki, you and I, or Emu, or whoever it is, will be going on to Tazria Mitzora next week after <laughs> yes. all. But thank you very much. Rifki, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Yeah, I really enjoyed thanks this. Thanks for letting me share with you this. I think it's very exciting. I don't really, I mean, I've just discovered it, and, and we could be entirely wrong, but I think, you know, the evidence is there, and what it means, I think, is a great Sherlock Holmes mystery. Here are some ideas, and I, I do invite our readers and listeners to, to kind of write in with their thoughts also. But until then... Rifki, it's been a pleasure doing this with you. Yes, everyone, please do not forget to also rate and review this in the iTunes store. And please, again, email us. We'd love to hear your feedback. Info at alabeta.org. Thank you all. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.